Hi, everybody, and welcome to the 29th episode of the Vassals of Kingsgrave Agatha Christie reread. My name is Bina007, and I will be hosting this mini pod on One to Buckle My Shoe, an Hercule Poirot mystery originally published in November 1940, so the early days of World War II. The reason why we're doing this as a mini pod rather than a full episode will, I think, become clear as we get into the plot structure and the solution to this novel. But I think it bears huge interest to the reader who is looking at Agatha Christie to give us hints as to how society changed in this turbulent period. It is one of the books that has the most coverage of the political turbulence in Britain in 1940, both from communists, from the far right, from imperialists and from revolutionaries. Between the publication of Sad Cypress and One to Buckle My Shoe, the following historic events have occurred. In May 1940, the Battle of France begins. Winston Churchill becomes Prime Minister. The British suffer an ignominious evacuation from Dunkirk. The Battle of Belgium ends in Germany's favour. Rotterdam is bombed by the Germans. The Dutch Queen flees to England and the Netherlands, therefore, is out of the war. Auschwitz-Birkenau opens. In June 1940, the Baltic states were occupied by the Soviet Union. Italy enters the war, the Battle of France ends, and the island of Guernsey, which sits between France and Britain but is British, is occupied by the Germans. In July of 1914, uh, we have Mers el Kabir. Now, this is very controversial. France has now fallen to the Germans. The French fleet sits at Mers el Kabir. And even though we are allied to France, Britain bombs the fleet because they cannot afford for it to fall into German hands. The Battle of Britain also begins and ends. This is, of course, the big air battle where Germany tries to bomb England into defeat. And by whatever miracle, the Royal Air Force and our allies who joined us in that fight held off. Winston Churchill makes a famous speech. He says, we shall seek no terms. We shall tolerate no parley. We may show mercy. We shall ask none. So you have to envisage Europe in which France, Belgium and the Netherlands have fallen to the Germans and Britain feels that it stands alone. In lighter pop cultural news, Bugs Bunny makes his debut. In August of 1940, and I think this is more relevant to One Two Buckle My Shoe because it gives a feel of how even in the allied nations, the far right and far left were growing in power. Charles Lindbergh addresses an isolationist rally in Soldier Field, Chicago. He is, of course, a Nazi sympathizer and an American nationalist. Leon Trotsky is assassinated, consolidating Stalin's power in the Soviet Union. And Winston Churchill makes his famous speech about the Battle of Britain. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. I have to admit that line still brings a tear to my eye as I repeat it. In September of 1940, the Blitz begins. London is now being bombed. Remember that Agatha Christie is living in London in a flat at this time. She has recommenced her work as a pharmacist slash nurse in London. In terms of technology, great advances are being made computationally then as now. 
George Stiblitz demonstrates the remote operation of a computer in the United States. We get the first peacetime draft in US history and remember that the US is not yet at war. And we also get the tripartite treaty between Germany, Italy and Japan. So the axis has formed. In October 1940, in popular culture, Charlie Chaplin releases his seminal film, The Great Dictator, where he plays the version of a fascist dictator like Hitler and makes an impassioned speech at the end for world peace. And in 1940, the month of publication of this book, FDR defeats Wendell Wilkie to become the only ever third-term president of the United States. The town of Coventry in England suffers a blitz. And Disney releases Fantasia with stereophonic sound. The film flops, but we now know it's a great advance in the cinematic arts and sciences. And very lightheartedly, Woody Woodpecker makes his debut. So these are the months in which Agatha Christie is writing, where Europe is falling to Hitler, where we start to see increasingly vocal politics on either side of the divide, and the centre does not, cannot, we fear will not hold. We know, of course, that it does, both in the United States and the UK, but it must have seen like a very, very politically turbulent time. And that's what comes forth in this novel. It's also the book in which rationing is continuing in the UK, And this must have been particularly hard for Agatha Christie because we know about her own love for creamy cakes and sweet things and therefore the consequences for her teeth and her figure, something I sympathise with greatly. The dedication for this novel reads to Dorothy North, who likes detective stories and cream in the hope it may make up to her for the absence of the latter, which I think is very, very sweet. And of course, the murder that takes place is that of a dentist. And a lot of the action of the film takes place in the dentist's chair. And I'm sure we can read onto Hercule Poirot and his very human fear of the dentist, some of Agatha Christie's own peril at the thought of having teeth rotted by too much sugar looked at by a professional. Before we get into the plot of the novel, let's look at how this political environment feeds into the novel. Most obviously, it is in the character of the dentist, Mr. Morley. He says, while in the dentist's chair very early on, it's the answer, you know, to their Hitlers and Mussolinis and all the rest of them, went on Mr. Morley as he proceeded to tooth number two. We don't make a fuss over here. Look how democratic our king and queen are. Of course, a Frenchman like you, accustomed to the Republican idea. I anna fraha, I a Benyon, poor Hercule Poirot, knocked out with a local anaesthetic, can barely dispute the fact that he's a Belgian. But I think it is interesting, isn't it? I think for a lot of people overseas, they would look at our king and queen and our monarchy and see that as profoundly anti-democratic. But of course, for people who believe in it, the constitutional monarchy is a form of democracy in which a neutral figurehead guarantees the democracy underneath it. We then also have a character in this novel called Alistair Blunt, who is meant to be a financier in the city of London, who is very involved in the government finances and is seen as a pillar of respectability, of safety, stability, and maybe a very sort of conservative political presence. Someone says of him, you mean that there are people who would like him out of the way? You bet there are, the Reds to begin with, and our black-shirted friends too. It's Blunt and his group who are standing solid behind the present government. Good, sound, conservative finance. So I suppose Alistair Blunt represents the solid conservative centre with the Reds and the Blacks 
aka the communists and the fascists on either side. Here's another passage which I think is really fascinating from an ordinary person, a character who's very much of the working or middle classes. Quote, we're very tiresome people in this country. We're conservative, you know, conservative to the backbone. We grumble a lot, but we don't really want to smash our democratic government and try newfangled experiments. That's what's so heartbreaking to the wretched foreign agitator who's working full time and over. The whole trouble is, from their point of view, that we really are, as a country, comparatively solvent. Hardly any country in Europe is at the moment. To upset England, really upset it, you've got to play hell with its finance. That's what it comes to. And you can't play hell with its finance when you've got men like Alistair Blunt at the helm. So that passage is speaking to something I've always believed in, actually, which is the inherent conservatism with a small c of the ordinary English public, which doesn't mean socially conservative in the way that, you know, um, being conservative on LGBTQ issues or things like that. What I mean by that is people who quite like things to move at a slow, organic pace and inherently mistrust the radical left and right. Um, And I think that's very much, I think we can read Agatha Christie's view of her fellow countrymen as well. But this is a time of agitation, both from communists and from fascists. But also remember, at this point, Britain is an imperial power at the height of its pomp. But there is a profound movement for independence in the colonies, particularly India. This is, of course, the time of uh, Mohandas Gandhi and his hunger strikes, his peaceful opposition. This is also reflected in Agatha Christie's work. Let me quote this passage. There was some sensational news in the morning papers. The Prime Minister had been shot at when leaving 10 Downing Street with a friend yesterday evening. Fortunately, the bullet had gone wide. The man, an Indian, had been taken into custody. So really, I feel this is an Agatha Christie novel that reflects the rise of communism, the rise of fascism, but also the rise of revolutionary agitation. And in doing so, I think, is one of her best novels for showing you just how turbulent Britain was at this time, even if the mechanics of the novel may not be quite what we would wish. (laughs) Let's get into it. And as always, no spoilers before the end credit music and spoilers thereafter. One Two Buckle My Shoe was published in November 1940, as I said, in the US and in February 1941 in the UK. Note that when it was originally published, it had the title The Patriotic Murders, speaking, I think, to that um, political tone in the book, but maybe also the very forced way into which Agatha Christie shoehorns this novel into a nursery rhyme, One Two Buckle My Shoe, is really poorly done and entirely unnecessary. A paperback edition in the US, apparently, by Dell Books, changed the title again to An Overdose of Death. So I think both of these speak to the fact that this really is a very, very unsatisfactory shoehorning of a perfectly good novel into a bad title. It's also worth pointing out that if we're getting into the Christie verse, this is sadly the final Inspector Jap novel. I've always felt rather sad. I rather like Inspector Jap. I was sad to see him go, unlike poor Captain Hastings, who was very grating, almost from the first. There are other Agatha Christie references, though, in part three, 10 of the novel, mention is made of Alistair Blunt's involvement in the Herzoslovakian loan, which is the fictional country from The Secret of Chimneys back in 1925. In part 4.1, Poirot and Chief Inspector Jap joke that a plot involving a body being, quote, put into the Thames from a cellar in Limehouse 
is, quote, like a thriller by a lady novelist, which is a reference to Agatha Christie's The Big Four. And then the final Christie verse reference in part 7-3, Poirot recollects the jewel thief Countess Vera Rosikoff. She is often portrayed as Hercule Poirot's love interest, especially in TV shows and the movies, but she also appears in The Big Four. So interestingly, The Big Four and The Secret of Chimneys are both kind of adventure stories slash Hercule Poirot novels, which are very political and all about big international political conspiracies. So Agatha Christie is clearly in that mindset while writing what may at first come along as a rather parochial novel set in a dentist's office. So the the spoiler-free plot of this novel is as follows. Hercule Poirot goes to the dentist, and as he enters, he sees a woman rather clumsily, out of fashion, dressed, who has a rather ugly buckle on her shoe. The buckle falls off, he picks it up and hands it to her, and she stays in his memory. He goes to the dentist, and there he meets his dentist, Mr. Morley, is rather pleased that the work cannot be finished that day and he must return. And he sees another of, a number of other people in the dentist's office. Later that day, he's called up by his friend, Inspector Jap, and told, by the way, that dentist um, has been found shot dead, apparently by suicide. Did you notice that his mood was off? And Poirot says, no, he seemed absolutely normal. So they set about just quietly investigating what has happened. They then realise that Mr. Amberiotis, who we then realise is both a spy and a blackmailer, another patient of this very highfalutin Harley Street dentist, has been found murdered. And later on, that Miss Sainsbury Seal, a retired actress, has gone missing. We also realise that another patient who saw the dentist that day was Alistair Blunt, the aforementioned incredibly important financier who many people would have a motive to mess with. And this leads us to try and investigate the murders, but also potential political plots against Alistair Blunt. So we are very much meant to believe that this is not a domestic murder, as many of the Hercule Poirot cases, which revolve around love and money, but that this is a political plot secret um, similar to that of The Secret of Chimneys and The Big Four. Okay, we'll discuss the plot further in the spoiler-filled section, but let's get into the characters. Hercule Poirot B. Hercule Poirot is, of course, wonderfully Hercule Poirot, <laughs> arrogant to the core. Here's a wonderful quotation. A momentary resentment rose in Poirot at this offhand coupling of names. Mr. Morley was a good dentist, yes, but there were other good dentists in London. There was only one Hercule Poirot. And here's another character quote that I just speaks to Poirot's modernity, actually, and his love of all things rational, modern, well-organized and square. (laughs) Hercule Poirot sat at his handsome modern desk. He liked modern furniture. Its squareness and solidity were more agreeable to him than the soft contours of antique models. And then, of course, we have Inspector Jap, who I think is really lovely. Um... There's a little in-joke, by the way, at the expense of the police, because Hercule Poirot's phone number is Whitehall 7272. The Scotland Yard number at the time was Whitehall 1212. And there's another little bit of English wartime slang when Inspector Jap says, Napu Hercule, which is World War I slang for Il n'y a plus. So it's an example of the French language coming over and being absolutely butchered by the British and falling into slang. So they are the inspectors. Let's get into the dentist practice. We have the dentist, Mr. Henley Morley. Mr. Henry Morley, who is socially conservative, we know, never forgets the face. 
We have Miss Georgina Morley, his sister, whom he lives with in the same building. She's very much in line with the sister of the doctor in The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, one of these really smart, really capable, no-nonsense spinsters that Agatha Christie has a great fondness for. Uh, We have Gladys Neville, the secretary, who was away on the day of the murder, lured away actually by a sort of fake telegram, who also seems incredibly sensible and really defends the dentist. She's she's very sceptical that he shot himself in suicide when he realised he'd made a mistake with Amberiotis and overdosed him effectively with anaesthetic. She points out that for dentists, it's not the same as doctors who might be giving different injections, different drugs, different amounts, and so could mess it up. She says with dentists, the local anaesthetic is it's just the same with everyone, and they get really into a sort of automatic routine with it. So she's a really another smart, capable woman of the kind that Agatha Christie writes. And like so many of the Agatha Christie women who are smart and capable, they fall for rather feckless men. In this case, the feckless man is Frank Carter, Gladys's boyfriend, who has fallen into a bit of instability with work, but has recently landed a very good and well-paid job, but rather mysterious as it takes him out of London and she can't contact him directly. We realise that he is a fascist sympathiser. He goes to rallies and I suspect that this is modelled on the British Union of Fascists run by Oswald Mosley. So you see in him the way in which the fascist movement in the UK might have attracted working class men who faced financial instability. I think it's a very realistic, if also rather chilling portrait. The final two people in the dentist practice are Mr. Riley, the second dentist. It's Mr. Morley's partner in his business. He's the junior dentist. We come to learn that he has Irish sympathies, which might also make him have political leanings, because, of course, Ireland was also a former colony um, with great reason to hate the British establishment and maybe has a drinking problem. And then we have the comic relief of Alfred the Errand Boy, whose job it is to let people in and out of the practice and so very important for establishing who was or was not in the building at the time that Mr Morley shot himself. The patients of the practice include Mr Amberiotis, the spy, the blackmailer who is later found dead at his hotel, Miss Sainsbury Seal, the retired actress, and of course everyone knows in Agatha Christie, actresses and actors are always subject to suspicion. This is how she's described rather uncharitably. Miss Sainsbury Seal was a woman of 40-odd with indecisively bleached hair rolled up in untidy curls. Her clothes were shapeless and rather artistic, and her pince-nez were always dropping off. She was a great talker. The next and most important patient, arguably, is Alistair Blunt. And this is the description of him. Alistair Blunt. Those were the names that thrilled nowadays. Not dukes, not earls, not prime ministers. No plain Mr. Alistair Blunt. A man whose face was almost unknown to the general public. A man who only figured in an occasional quiet paragraph. Not a spectacular person. And if we look at Alistair Blunt's entourage, um, they include... Well, he has a late wife called Rebecca Sanseverato. Um, Echoes of Agatha Christie marrying a younger man and who was financially subservient. Alistair had, had married Rebecca when she was older and incredibly wealthy. Very, again, smart and intelligent and capable in business. She had introduced him to the banking sector. And when she dies, he inherits her fortune and business and goes on to take it to an even higher level. So quite the power couple. 
Alistair lives with Mrs. Oliveira, who was Rebecca's niece. Um, She's described as clacking like a big fat hen, which is rather unfortunate. And Jane Oliveira, her daughter, who was a young, attractive woman. Also living on the estate is Helen Montressor, their Scotch cousin. Jane Oliveira is seeing a young man called Mr. Howard Rakes, who we know is an anti-capitalist, a dangerous and attractive young man. So all sorts of political torrents wandering around this novel. And the idea is whether the real target was Mr. Henry Morley or whether he got mixed up in effectively a political assassination attempt on Alistair Blunt. In terms of how the novel was received at the time, E.R. Punchin in The Guardian reviewed the novel in December 1940 and said, Mrs. Christie has to work coincidence rather hard and the plot is more ingenious than probable since the culprit could and certainly would have reached his end by simpler means than murder. And I have to say, I completely agree with this. And that's the reason why this is a mini pod. And we'll get into it in the spoiler part of the discussion. As to whether the novel is progressive or regressive, um, actually, there's remarkably little anti-Semitism in this novel. And especially given that it's set in the world of high finance, which in previous decades, Agatha Christie would have very casually and in a very anti-Semitic way have linked with the Jewish race. But she does not do that here. There is one thing that's a little bit dodgy, and it's about Irishmen. Did he get on well with his partner, Mr. Riley? Miss Morley replied acidly. As well as you can ever hope to get on with an Irishman. What do you mean by that, Miss Morley? Well, Irishmen have hot tempers, and they thoroughly enjoy a row of any kind. Mr. Riley liked arguing about politics. So not clear whether that's Agatha Christie's view, or just Miss... Morley's view or the view of the general British public at the time, I suspect it probably hints at a cliche about the Irish personality that was generally abroad at the time and not a very flattering one at that. In terms of adaptations, this novel was adapted in 1992 for the David Suchet Agatha Christie's Poirot series. It's very faithful to the book, but it does slim out some of the characters, thank goodness, like Rakes, Riley and Barnes. I actually think it's a rather good adaptation in the changes that it makes. I think it makes the novel better in some respects. You also get a little uh, prologue set in India with real footage of Prince David's royal tour, which is quite cool. It has a very sinister tone. Some of these adaptations can be very twee, but this one is very self-consciously dark, sinister, political, brooding. It feels like a wartime novel. I think there is a flaw with it, and we will have to sadly get into that with the solutions and the spoilers. Before we do that, um, let me thank you once again for listening, and also to let you know that the next episode will cover Evil Under the Sun, which is another Hercule Poirot mystery. I think it's an absolute banger. I think it's really great, and we will do that as a full episode. So if you want to read ahead, please do. There's also a fantastic big budget movie starring Peter Ustinov as Poirot and featuring an amazingly catty rivalry between Diana Rigg and Dame Maggie Smith. So very well worth a watch. Okay, folks, everything that follows is up for spoilers. So the solution is that this is really a domestic murder and that all the political skullduggery was really a deception. The motive is that years before, Alistair Blunt had met and married an actress in India, an actress who knew Miss Sainsbury Seal, who was also an actress. 
He then came to Europe and met the incredible financier Rebecca Sanseverato and married her bigamously in order to both gain her wealth, her knowledge and her contacts. When she dies, he could, of course, have then married the first wife again and legitimized her, but chose not to because apparently they both love to, <laughs> they both effectively love amateur dramatics and all the sort of skullduggery of sneaking around in their bigamous relationship, which is stretch number one. So that when Miss Sainsbury Seal comes back to England and recognises Alistair Blunt, this is problematic because he will expose the bigamous marriage. Unfortunately for Miss Sainsbury Seal, she also meets Mr. Amberiotis, the blackmailer, and reveals again that she knows that Alistair Blunt was married before. So now Blunt has to kill both Miss Sainsbury Seal and Mr. Amberiotis. He also kills the dentist. The dentist, of course, would be able to identify people by their dental records. The whole thing is really rather ridiculous. And we realise that Helen Montresor, the Scotch cousin, is really the first wife in disguise. There is more to get into about how this is discovered. And basically, it comes down to shoe size, stocking size, and the fact that Hercule Poirot realises that there are actually two Miss Sainsbury seals, one with brand new shoes and one with very worn shoes, and that the shoes are both different sizes. And by this point, anyone who's read Agatha Christie realises that anyone who's an actress is suspicious and that people can take on and put off identities at whim. There are references to real-life crime in this. Jap wonders if Poirot thinks they will find Miss Sainsbury seal quote, cut up in little pieces like Mrs. Ruxton. Uh, Mrs. Ruxton was a very poor woman who was murdered by her husband in 1935. Their maid, Mary Jane Rogerson, um, was also murdered and their dismembered bodies were discovered in Dumfriesshire in Scotland. The remains had been there for 12 to 14 days, which is horrific. Some parts were wrapped in a special souvenir edition of the Sunday Graphic newspaper, which had only been circulated in the Morecambe and Lancaster region. The husband was tried, found guilty and hanged in 1936. I think the problem that most people have with this novel is that the plot mechanics are really convoluted and complex. And even though they all make sense because there are no plot holes, Agatha Christie knows her business with plotting, just all feels rather ludicrously complicated. And that if you're Alistair Blunt, there are probably easier ways to go about dispatching two people who could expose your bigamy. Um, I also feel that given what we know of the time in the establishment, if he was really that important to keeping Britain financially solvent, I suspect he might have been able to confide in the Prime Minister and say he was a bigamist, and that the establishment would either have covered it up, or that MI5 might have been sent to discreetly dispose of, or maybe hush up Miss Sainsbury Seal and Mr Amberiotis. So, I don't know, the whole just thing just seems rather convoluted and overdone. But I think there is something rather neat about the fact that with Agatha Christie, very often the solution to murders are so simple and so human and lie in human nature and human wants and desires. Sex, lust, love, money, they are at heart very believable and simple murders. And I love the idea that the communism, the fascism, the Indian and the Irish revolutionaries, this is all a smokescreen to something far simpler. And even if we don't really believe the plot of the book, I think it is really interesting as a sort of social snapshot of what Britain was at the time and how someone essentially sort of rather middle class like Agatha Christie might have felt that there were so many political torrents that were shaking the boat, but ultimately a rather hopeful faith that the boat 
would stay right ways up and would not capsize because of the of the essential common sense of the British people. Anyway, with that, I really hope you've enjoyed listening to this mini pod. If you are a fan of this book and disagree with the way in which we've uh, just sidelined it into a mini pod, feel free to jump on the Discord at Vassals of King's Grave and join the conversation. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you.